Right with my brother Nick, you know. So I'm glad. I'm glad I finally got you here. Right, we got it doing a podcast here live. I did yours, you know. Nick, real estate investor, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. Matt, Sarah, black belt, podcaster, and here we are, man, in LA, hanging out. I love it, man. Thanks for having me. You're always uh, you're always welcoming and kind, and uh, you've showed us quite a day already, man. So I really appreciate it. So glad, man. So glad we finally made it made it happen. You know, the whole whole experience because we always meet up. Like early in the morning, doing some some private jujitsu training, right? Early in the morning before your uh, your conferences yeah. and your meetings. Yeah, no no agenda this time. It was nice and easy. I said the only the only two rules I had for coming out this week was that we had to meet Alberto, and we had to meet Jason Eisner. We have done those, so I'm happy, man. Nice. You just did the cold plunge. Man, <laughs> I was such a disappointment with the cold plunge. I was we'll, like, I we'll take go cold back. showers. It's we'll the same back. thing. We'll go back. We'll go back. <laughs> we'll do it again. She would have been so disappointed in me. I got. I got to do it again. I gotta hey, do it. I'll do yeah. it with you. I'll All right, do cool, it with you. Cool. Yeah, yeah. How did you? Uh, how did you get into uh, real estate? So I was going to be. Um, I tell everybody joking around. I took every test you could think of for like FBI, CIA, DEA, mm-hmm. NYPD, everything with three or four letters. I was testing for. I was initially going to college upstate and I wanted to do, I really didn't want to do anything. And then September 11th happened and I decided I wanted to do something related to law enforcement and counterterrorism. Mm. So I switched my degree to criminal justice. And then after I graduated, those positions all take like a very long time. You have to test for the psychological weight, take the written weight, and they call you back, call you back. It takes years to really go through the whole process. So during that time, I went into construction. Oh, wow. And so when I was doing construction, I was working on a machine one day, faulty machinery came down, crushed my hand. That turned into about a year, year and a half of just therapy and OT and PT. And then they started calling me back for those positions. And they told me because of your hand injury, you'll never get a job in law enforcement or any of these federal jobs or any of this stuff. So couldn't do construction, couldn't do law enforcement, didn't really know what I, I was gonna have to fall back on. And then my mom followed me around with the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I know you and I talked about that and Think and Grow Rich and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So she followed me around with the book. And um, I saw during that book that 70% of all millionaires made their money through real estate. And you didn't need any money or any credit starting out. I had no money, no credit, no experience, nothing. So I was like, well, I feel like I checked that box. So started learning, getting educated, taking courses, um, you know, going to all the classes and stuff that would come through the area and uh, eventually wound up finding some mentors and accidentally falling into real estate because I was in the process of having like a year, year and a half home just to heal. Uh And I was like, I'll probably never have that opportunity again in my life to just dive into this. So if I can figure this out now during this window, I'll never have to go do something else. And because I had what I thought was such a good plan, I tested very high in a lot of those federal jobs, like Uh 60, 70 out of like 19, 20,000. I thought everything was so safe and secure with like, I'll get the degree, I'll get the job. And then when that gets all taken away from you overnight, it's very, it puts you in this weird spot of realizing that you can't rely on anybody else. And so real estate became the thing where I went, you know what, I can't ever put myself in a position where I'm relying on somebody else for income because who knows what else could happen. So kind of fell backwards into real estate and just never really went back after that, went in full time. Wow. Wow. Because of one, one thing changed everything. Your hand, you wouldn't get hired and yeah. Your mom. So, how did your mom find find those those books, or what? Or how did she? You want? know, um, I feel like she she did the mom book club thing for a while, where they, you know, I just always had stuff kind of coming in the mail. But it was really interesting when you think back because 
I remember she she had that book, and she was always putting things in my head. Oh, okay, look look at this, watch this. Da-da. You know, she she had a little bit of that entrepreneurial stuff. She was right. always looking for all the normal stuff people do, selling soap, prepaid legal, all kinds of stuff. But I read that book, and I remember I told her, like, hey, I read the book, and I'm actually really interested in real estate. And she was like, hey, funny enough, this other book came, and it was The One Minute Millionaire by a guy named Robert Allen. Mm. And he was like the original No Money Down Real Estate guy. So she was like, hey, this book just came. It's really funny that you just read the other one. She's like, and then there's this conference that's coming to town, and it's like a free two-hour thing, and you go and you learn about real estate, no money down. And so she really opened up that whole thing. And like that day that I mentioned it, that other book randomly came from her book club, and then there was a conference in New York that day, and everything just really lined up. It really was one of those everything happens for a reason at the right time. And Yeah, you were ready for it. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, wow. So what was your first uh, real estate deal? Man, so it was interesting because all the stuff that I was unhappy about then, mm. you look a year, two, three years down the road and you realize all that stuff actually was one of the best things that happened to you. So I was very dead set on, I lived in New York, I wanted to only do real estate in New York, and it was so competitive, you know, especially starting out with like no money, no experience, any kind of stuff like that. But then I started looking at some of these other areas like Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, where you started to look for houses that were maybe $50,000, $60,000. You put twenty, thirty dollars in, and they're worth one fifty, one seventy five. You turn around, you sell them, you refinance them. And at that time, too, you could get those deals. It was right around, right before the market crashed. I, I joke around. I say, I feel like I caused the crash the second I was like, I'm in. Everybody was like, out. 2008? Yeah, you're yeah, right around there. So it was, you could buy a property with no money down, no credit, none of that kind of right, stuff. Right, right. And they would actually give you a check back when you bought a property. So... I went and I bought some rentals in Vegas, and then I bought some other properties in Michigan, and I used creative financing. But for me, those felt like safer deals because they felt like at fifty, sixty thousand, if I make a mistake, it's not a colossal mistake. Mm-hmm. Versus in New York, if I make a mistake on a six hundred thousand dollar deal, you know. But now I realize that if it's a deal, it's a deal. If it's a spread, it's a spread. But that was my comfort level at that time. Is cheaper is better. So. That, that was basically like my first eight deals in six months were a few deals in Vegas where they would give you some money back as the down payment. And then you would take that money, you'd throw it into like a down payment on a hard money loan where they would give you the money to buy the properties, fix them up, put tenants in, and then sell them or refinance them out. So we started doing a lot of out-of-state stuff in Georgia, Michigan, and Vegas initially. Mm. And that forced me to learn how to invest out-of-state and start to put these different processes in place to connect with people and communicate with people and I learned all the wrong ways to do stuff. I made all the mistakes. I did everything wrong. And then during the pandemic, everybody started turning towards Zoom meetings and doing stuff out of state. And it became a normal thing now. Whereas people just started doing that over the last couple of years. I feel like I've been doing that for 15 years. So if I was dead set and only doing deals in New York and only doing deals in places I could see, I would never have opened up the whole literally country to be able to look at, now I know if I just look at certain specs and certain optics and certain little check boxes to let me know that an area is safe, it opens up opportunities all over the country. So the analogy I tell people is if you think of every city and state as ponds, Mm -hmm. that means that you'll always have fish, regardless if everybody all of a sudden decides, well, hey, Pasadena's a great pond, I'm gonna come there, I'm gonna buy all the fish, I'm gonna buy all the real estate, it gets too competitive. It's like, okay, well, I have all these other places I can still rely on to go get deals. And because of that, over the last 15 years, the markets we worked in 
they change and you go to different places to get deals, different people to, to buy the deals from you, different requirements, but you always have a place to get deals. You always have a way to make money. And that's one of the things that, again, I, I was very resentful of the fact that I was forced to go invest out of state. And then you look back and you go, that was the best thing that ever happened to me business wise. So like, you know, you know, your instinct would be to do something local that you, you can keep an eye on it. Right. And then because, but you know, here in California, LA, it's like so expensive, New York, same thing. Right. And so how do you, how do you do it out of state? You have a, a team, you have a, partners that you partner up with that are maybe there? What, what, how, do, how does it work? Go to these other markets and you start to look at just the numbers right. and you you got to put those teams in place. So everybody's not going to conspire to come up with some situation to make you buy that deal. Somebody is going to come forward and say, hey man, don't buy this. This is the meth block. This is this block. This is that block. Like one specific, I remember the guy was like, look, your house is good if it was like six houses over where yours is, is on the corner and there's a hole in the fence and there's a liquor store next door. And everybody's, nobody's going to want to live there with their kids because there's always like broken by. So it's like these little things like that where you go, hey, I appreciate that. And then you basically just tell them the next time you go out, if you go out for somebody else and you see boarded up homes or falling down, like keep your eyes peeled for what you want. So you, you start to put those people in place mm. that basically just verify what you think the numbers are or they counter them and come back that it doesn't need this amount, it needs this amount, or it's not this. And, and then you just make the decision based off of that. Because when people forget, when you get an offer accepted, you generally have a minimum of seven to 10 days from the time that that's a written accepted contract, meaning both people sign it. Right. So I can get an extra three to five days before everything is even executed to get those people lined up and in there. And generally within that first week, I'm going to have multiple people coming in and out telling me if my numbers are correct and if my area is good. And if it is awesome that I move forward. And if it's not, then I either just back out or I renegotiate. Mm. If it's a numbers thing, I renegotiate. If it's an area thing, I'm out. But then kind of what we were just talking about is that's just the numbers part of it. So mm. if the numbers check out awesome, but I think where people go wrong out of state is they set it and they forget it. And I think they assume that just because a property is not in front of me, even though I'm not there, don't confuse that with that. I don't know what's happening every day. I'm getting updates every single hour through Slack or through WhatsApp or something from my teams. I'm setting expectations now because we've done it the wrong way. My partner and I, I used to always be, well, they're doing the right thing. I don't have to babysit them. I haven't heard from them for two weeks, but it's probably fine. And then you realize that they moved in two weeks ago and they're like drunk sleeping on the floor and they're in the middle of a divorce and it's all those things. So I tell everybody that I, I came up with something I call the rule of 72 meaning you never want to go more than 72 hours without pictures and videos and reports back from your contractors during that construction. Mm. Because if you haven't had a problem with the contractor yet, you just haven't done enough real estate yet, it's 100% going to happen at some point. But if you catch problems when they're small, which is going to happen in any business, early, right? Yeah, they yeah. don't get big. But that that's where you have to get better. Like we talked about those crucial conversations of getting them out. So maybe you do find out the contractor did something screwy, but you caught it in two or three days. You fired them. You got them out. Maybe your job got a little bit delayed. Maybe you went a little bit over budget, but you still made money and you were still fine versus you buy every excuse. Every time you fire them, they have a great excuse. My mother died. It's my birthday, my this, my that. And you start to go, I'll give them another chance, a third chance, a fourth chance. So that whole tagline of like, be slow to hire and be quick to fire, we've had to get very good at and just know sooner, like we already know how this is going to go. We got to get them out of there. But I'll set those things like, let's say it's a, a rental property. Mm -hmm. I started putting things in place where I'll tell them, look, if you're going to work 12 to 5, at 12 o'clock, you have to FaceTime my assistant 
from the leasing office and say, look, I'm here, look around, I'm at the job, I'm, I'm sober, all the things that come up, you know? And then it's like, hey, here's my three priorities for the day because one of my mentors always told me if you have more than three priorities in a day, you have no priorities in a day. So set them up for success. And then at five o'clock before they leave, they have to FaceTime my assistant again and say, hey, I'm still at the property. Here's proof of the three things I did today. And if they don't do that, they don't get paid for the day. So it's the same thing with the contractors. You know, you have alarm systems on there for very cheap that I have on my app when they go in, when they go out. So I'll ask them like, hey, what time were you in today? And if they're like, oh man, I was there at nine o'clock. I know that they weren't there until noon, but I'll let them lie to me a couple of times. And then it's almost like I joke around when your kid gets into your, your donuts and comes in with chocolate all over her face and you go, hey, did you get in daddy's donuts? And they go, no, like, you know, they did. Mm-hmm. And that's what starts to happen is you have these things in place that you already know the answers to. You're just trying to find out, are you going to be honest with me? And usually if they're not within that first week, they're not my person. They're out. I got to get somebody else. So, but that's really the management part of it. Like you have to make sure you're setting expectations that they're communicating how you like to communicate. So if you don't like the text message, if you're not good with technology, you're going to need somebody that's good at getting on the phone and they want to talk to you all the time versus like Joey Diaz. You're saying the other day, Joe, I don't, you don't text me. You pick up the phone, you call. That's a guy that's going to be like, if I only text message, he and I are never going to work good together versus I'm a guy who's like, I need you to upload pictures. I need you to upload videos. And I just need to text me a couple of times a day. You might be a great contractor, but if you have a flip phone and you don't know how to use Google Docs, you're not going to be a good guy for me. So it's those little things of like, even though the people might be good, you almost don't want to ask the bad questions where I give the dating analogy of like, oh man, the date's going so well. I don't want to ask her if she wants to have kids or not because things are going, I'm going to wait six years and then I'll like, but that's what people do, you know? So it's like, oh, but he's such a great contractor. She's such a great management person. I have a great realtor. I don't want to find out now that they're not okay calling me every day or uploading stuff to Google, but it's like, get to know now, get it out of the way now. They want to be people that want to please everybody. Right? People yes. Please yeah, yeah. Yeah. And that, that's really like what, what that's the nuts and bolts of it. It really comes down to like getting multiple people in place first to have checks and balances to make sure your numbers and your areas are good. And then once you have those things in place, setting those proper expectations for communication and regular communication, no more than two or three days, and having resolutions in there for when, not if they come back and they're not doing those things, you're always the bad guy. How could you not pay me today? It's like, look, I told you, FaceTime me at 12, FaceTime me at five. You didn't do it for three days, you didn't get paid for three days. Like I can train my kids to FaceTime you at 12 and five when they go to school and when they come home. If you can't do that, you shouldn't be renovating my $50,000 house. You shouldn't be fixing up my apartment building. So they're always mad about it. But you go back to, hey, we set this expectation up front. And I think that was a a big thing over the years of deals that were going bad versus good Mm. is starting to set those expectations as they were happening. And they're like, yeah, but we didn't talk about this. I'm very clear up front now of like, hey, this is how it's going to be. So if you have a problem with this, tell me now. So later on when it does come up, it's like, hey, no, no, no. Remember, like last Thursday, we talked about this. It's right there on the paper. Mm-hmm. You signed on it. And that eliminates like a lot, not all, but it eliminates a lot of the people up front because you're kind of getting, they just disappear. They stop calling you back. They don't sign the contracts and helps. Same thing, right? Beer, uh, with business, clear expectations, right? And then, you know, things are less likely to go sideways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they still do. And I think that that, again, comes down to, people skills and, and communications mm-hmm. and, and conflict resolution, which is, I think, where jiu-jitsu helps in business. Right, you know? right, right. Speaking of jiu-jitsu, how, uh, how did you get into jiu-jitsu? 
So before I hurt my hand, I was a boxer, and I was okay. trying to train in the Golden Gloves. And then you grew sudden, up in in Long, Long Island. Island. Yeah, yeah, grew up in Long Island. Moved to Manhattan for a little bit, but for the most part, like Long Island guy. Okay. And then when I was training for the Golden Gloves, hurt my hand. And then I remember after the two things when I like walk up from surgery or before I went into surgery for my hand, I remember saying, I wish I would have taken more chances fighting. And I wish I would have bought more real estate. So I made these little notes in my phone of like, hey, if you get through these surgeries, make sure you just take advantage of every opportunity to fight and every opportunity to buy real yeah. estate. And I remember at that time, because it took me a long time for my hand to heal, I was like, oh, I'll get into kickboxing because now I can use not just two hands, but I can start using arms and legs and all that kind of stuff. But then you start getting your bell rung a little bit too much. And I was like, well, I probably should balance this out with something else. Mm. And my brother had trained with Matt Sarah. Okay. So I started at a different gym. And I remember I trained there for like two or three weeks. I didn't even really know like what jujitsu was. I did a tournament, dislocated my shoulder in the first match. And this was like, it was illegal in New York. You had to go to New Jersey. And illegal, the right? Yeah. yeah, yeah the yeah, tournaments yeah, were yeah, in like some yeah. basement of some church with like mats that were like made out of rock. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I hurt my shoulder and then I needed a few months to heal up. And during that time, I was trying to find another place to go. And I remember Pete Drago Cell, I was like, hey, man, like where, where should I go train? Because everyone, everybody you ask would tell you, well, don't go to this place because the, like they'll beat you up over there and don't go here. They're mean. And you'll never don't go to that place. Matt Sarah's not even there. And, and like you'll get killed over there. And Drago was the only person who was like, man, jujitsu is amazing. Just go do jujitsu anywhere and it's going to change your life. Here's why I love training at Sarah Jiu-Jitsu. And I was like, he was the only one that didn't try and build his gym up by tearing everybody else's down. Mm. I was like, that's the kind of people I want to be around. So I went down and of course, Matt was there every day, all day. And, um, you know, you just, you find your tribe. So I went in there, I got my butt kicked kind of like I did today with the cold plunge. <laughs> and then I was like, man, like I either have to make the decision of I don't want to go back ever again, or I got to go back tomorrow and not get beat up as bad. But just the energy that Matt had in that place and the the people from the top down, I just, I instantly just fell in love. I was like, man, where's, where's this place been my whole life? And like him in that place have changed my life for sure. What year was that? Uh, you know, it was all like right around the same time. So probably 2006, 2007, like right around there, like the real estate and the jujitsu thing happened almost like at the identical time mm. of my life. Wow. Wow. What were some of the things that you, uh, you, you know, you saw jujitsu crossover into your, you know, professional life, like real estate and things like that? So one of the, one of the first things that I think is super interesting is the community, mm. having people around you that celebrate each other. I mean, like my brother's a musician, I got him into it. And I remember he was telling me, I wish my music friends celebrated each other wins with the same way my jujitsu friends do. So I guess like in the music industry, somebody gets a, a record deal or something. It's like, oh, they, they suck. Our band should. Whereas here, it's like, oh man, like this dude just got his black belt. He just got promoted. It's like, good for him. He's here every day. Like I've watched Jason Rao on the medicine. You're proud. Well, yeah, you know. So, like having people around. And you're like part that, of it. And you're part of their success. Yeah, you yeah. Feel like, like you, you got it too with them. I, I love that. So that that taught me to to first off find people that I could look up to that were uh, Matt Sarah always he calls me Nicky Knuckles, but he was always like Knuckles. Water finds its own level. And like, uh, that's kind of what I found. Like the, that was my level of people. So that helped with a lot of the, the mental stuff that was going on for my hand injury. I felt like, and Matt always says it. He's like, Knuckles, man, this is the land of misfits toys. We all feel like we don't belong somewhere, but we all belong here. And I was like, man, this is like a place that I don't feel like uncomfortable going into. And people I can actually talk about my hand injury. And cause you know, it was like very intimidating when mm -hmm. it first happened. So 
I felt like that helped me self conscious, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, but then the the other part of that is I felt like the problem solving and the conflict resolution part of that, where every day I felt like, man, I got these deals going, I got stuff going wrong, and you just think to yourself, I can't go to jujitsu today. It's it's too busy. I have too much going on. But when then you actually get there. I realized that it's one of the only places where you have to, for me, I have to be in the moment, whereas no matter how much I think I have something on my mind, the second a guy like here is barambolowing me or somebody's grabbing my neck, you instantly forget. You go, okay, I don't care about the contract. I got to block this. I got to watch my arm. I got to watch my neck. And before you know it, like the hour goes by and you forgot about all that stuff. And then when you get back in your car and you're driving home, you're like, oh, I know the answer to that problem now. Like I just do this. I just do that. And you know, a, a longer answer, but my, my buddy, Santa Fe guy, actually, uh, Ruben Rivera. Okay. He's a, Ruben Rivera, he's a Eddie Barvo uh, black belt. But he was talking about his baby, and he goes, man, my baby is so amazing. Every night when she goes to sleep, she wakes up, and it's like an iPhone that got powered down and wakes up with new features. Now it can wave, now it can smile, now it can crawl. And I feel like what jujitsu did for me, it was my iPhone that update my software, mm. where as much as I was like on overload, it would let me shut down for an hour, and then it allowed me to see this whole new perspective on business that I didn't see before. And it also teaches you that when you're in a tough place and all you want to do is tap out and give up, you hold on for another minute and you go, okay, still, I'm not going to tap here. Let me take a breath. Let me take another second. And it teaches you to find a way out when you want to panic and you want to give up. And I feel like business and life, that's been one of the biggest things that jujitsu and boxing taught me is you get in a comfortable position, you get your bell rung, you take a breath and you find a way out. Mm. You know, and I think that that, when uh, somebody once told me, I don't work for anybody, I work for the deal. And I thought that that was really interesting because every single deal I've ever done, it's never, hey, Alberto, do you want to sell me your property at half of the value? It, of course, they're always like, no. But you wait and you wait for the motivation to get up and three, four, five, six months go by and eventually they call you back and they go, look, we didn't solve that problem. We really need to get rid of this property. Will you still buy it? And then you have to wait for that whole process to come through but you're dealing with people that are emotional so the lending falls apart the wife says no the husband says no the attorney says so you're constantly dealing with all these emotions of people that are upset because they're they're losing money or they're like every day the deal's falling apart and you have to put it back together so being able to stay calm and say i work for the deal and i have to manage all these different personalities and while they're all freaking out i have to stay, stay calm. calm yeah that to me has been probably the key to success and just getting deals done yeah wow yeah that's it right the emotional part the emotional component yeah. is what tires fries people out burns them out yeah yeah messes up the performance right? yeah exactly fighters jujitsu um i had, a, I had a, one of my black belts adam's black belt speech he said uh he's like he went into investment banking and in his black belt speech he's like man all these guys in my you know that were going through too they had to drink, they had to do drugs to, to be able to cope with, you know, the ups and downs, right? And he was able to stay calm because of jiu-jitsu, like what you just said. That's awesome. That's <laughs> that awesome. was a really nice, really, really nice speech. I never forgot that. Yeah, that's cool, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, man. So what are, what are some of the places that you like to go these days with, I don't know, with, with deals? Or are you just all, all over the place? So we're try for commercial stuff all over the country. For residential stuff, I am trying to build more stuff just in Illinois now. So it's great having options everywhere. Mm. But what we're trying to do is build roots where we don't have to keep rebuilding the teams, rebuilding the teams, rebuilding the teams. That's, that's what I was going to ask you also on, on 
you find your people that you that you like working with, and then you work with them again, probably on other deals, right? Yeah, and there, yeah. wherever wherever you go. Yeah, yeah. Because it becomes a test where you know I I think part of the other problem is just like jujitsu, people want their black belts tomorrow, mm. and I think you have to remember as long as you don't think that you're going to be rich on Monday, it's well. Molly Easton was I was just I was like hey he was like hey man I that's my plan B. He's like but the plan A is going great. I go well that's the best time to build the plan B because you don't want to wait until plan A falls apart and now you have to do it. You do it in the background when you don't have that additional pressure and it makes life a lot easier. So you do one, you let the one go through when that property is about to sell. Now you go, okay, well I had a good contractor. He did a great job. My realtor did a great job. They found me a buyer. My appraiser was spot on. It sold for exactly what they said the appraiser was going to be. The inspection was good. Nothing weird popped up. Like everybody did their job. Now this property is going to sell in the next 30 to 60 days guys go out and find me two. And now you do those two. You go through that same thing. It's at the same process. Those go to say, cool. Now let's go do four. So, but what happens every time is you have just enough. And it's interesting because the, like the expectations you ask the contractors, well, look, how many jobs can you take right now that won't make you over leverage? Cause contractors are always falling behind. always chasing the next deal. So they'll always say like, Hey, Alberto, man, three company policy. We never do more than three at a time. But then all of a sudden you get four and they go, well, we'll take that. I go, what happened to, you know, well, no, 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 we got another guy. We got this, we got that. And then it turns into now they're scared that you're going to go hire another contractor right. and that's going to become your person. So they agree, they convince you that they can take on more than they can. And now they're falling behind on all four. And now you wind up having to let them go. And so like stuff pops up that you usually want to have to have a few of them in your belt. There'll be one or two of them, but without fail, I, the joke is kind of, if things go great, you guys are going to break up. If things go bad, you guys are going to break up. So you have to constantly be rebuilding your teams. You have to constantly be looking for new talent. So you'll get like a life cycle of them. Mm. But inevitably, if they're not your only crew, they're dealing with other people. Somebody else screwed them. Some other job went long. Now they're trying to take it out. Like, so it always, it's, it's always a revolving door. But you can get like a good couple of years out of a good crew. That's, that's cool. I was going to ask you, like, I was just thinking of some of my guys in the black belts and stuff. They're like, yeah, I want to buy a house, but the house is just so expensive now here in L.A. You know, so how would you recommend, advise someone to, you know, to build up some, some cash flow to be able to afford a house here in, in L.A.? So if it's, if it's not necessarily for an investment, the rules are a little bit different. If I was younger and I could go back, I'd do it the way Ally Quinta did it, where you could do a house hack. House hack. Yeah, so you get some people to move in with you. Like Uri Faber, I know, did the same mm. thing where he would buy a house and then he would rent out the rooms to fighters and they'd all kind of train together and they cook together and they live together. Have a bunch of roommates. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually you're basically living for free and you're getting some equity pay down on there. And then you start to get a little bit of money and then another house in the block opens up and you buy that house. So I think that that's a great way if you're younger and you're looking to get in, get some roommates, rent out some rooms, get that going in or buy something that's a duplex, a triplex or a fourplex because mm. it's still considered residential. And if you're going to live in one of those units, you can get a very low down payment loan. Now the payments are going to be a little bit higher initially, but you only have to live in there for one year. Then you can move out and you can rent out that fourth unit or that third unit or that second unit. So even if you had something that was a break even when you're living in one, the next year, knowing that you can throw somebody in there, you got three or four people paying down your mortgages bad part to California is a place like this, the prices are high, mm -hmm. but also when you look at uh, a, like a five, six, seven, eight percent increase in that equity, because you're paying more, you can make 
equity and profit in that a lot quicker. So mm-hmm. there is that that pro and con, that downside to the upside. If I was just going to go invest to buy a property right now to cash flow, it's, it's going to be very hard here without having something that's multiple tenants in that house or multiple units of that house. I probably would go to another market that you can cash flow. Ohio's, Florida's, some of those Midwest areas, even Florida, some huh? in Arizona. Yeah. They're, they're from not probably not Miami in those those areas, but no, other, yeah, yeah, yeah Miami's gonna go tough. The the Panhandle right area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tampa still got some stuff. Orlando, but like a, oh, I I've always loved finding major cities like a, a Tampa or like a New York, mm. and looking at the suburbs around them. Like mm. we, we always call them ripple markets. That like if you had a major ripple city, markets, uh-huh. let's say the major city was a pond, you drop a big pond, uh, boulder in the middle of that pond, it's gonna make a big splash in the city, mm. but the ripple effect is gonna affect some of those other areas. So. Like when I say I, I do deals in Phoenix, I wouldn't do them necessarily in the heart of Phoenix. I'd find some place within an hour of Phoenix that people still commute back and forth for work. And those suburbs outside are, are great. Like Chicago suburbs, we're not in the city of Chicago, but we're within 35, 45 minutes of it. So you still have like a solid anchor with good life, good businesses, all that kind of stuff. Um, there was another one I was just talking about that we were in, like e- even uh, Georgia, like Atlanta. I used to invest in Atlanta, but we did so much better 30, 40 minutes outside of the center of the city because you have less competition from these big funds. The houses tend to be less expensive, be a little bit more desirable. So you can get like twice the house for half the price with half the competition. And over the course of five, 10 years, people keep moving out of the cities, especially during the pandemic. You saw a huge surge of that and those values come up so you can get better cash flow. How do you find those houses? How do you find those, those, those areas? So initially I look for that city and then I start looking out for realtors and brokers and I let them guide me. So Mm. like, for instance, they'll start to say like, well, Hey, again, fishing ponds, like, Hey, let me find the areas where like my two big metrics are how fast are houses selling and how recently have they sold. So they call them DOM for days on market and DOS for days on days of sale. So if I see that they go, Hey Nick, here's Atlanta. And they show me some areas like this is literally how I found it. So she goes, well, here's an area, but it's super competitive. It's like still in the city. She's like, but I work 10 minutes outside in this other thing. Okay, cool. Like, let me see the houses over there. She starts to send me some like comparables of like, hey, here's what's sold in the last six months. But everything's a little bit of the Wild West. It's not fixed up homes like I fixed up. The days on market are 100 days. Nothing's really sold in the last 30, 60, 90 days. I have to give them that feedback of like, hey, this isn't really what I'm looking for. I need some place that I can make sure I can turn this house in 30 to 60 days. And if I can see that it took under 60 days to sell that house, and a house exactly like that sold within the last 60 days, I can feel it for pretty good that there's demand for what I'm selling. So when we when we say like the comparables come in, the more I tell them, hey, just find the areas, I'll reach out to tons of them and I'll say, you tell me, like, where's the place you would be investing? And then I just let them send me that data. Mm. And a lot of the times the data is wrong, but when I correct them, I go, these are the types of areas I'm looking for, not these. They'll come back and tell you like, hey, not Pasadena, Altadena, not Altadena, Burbank. Like, and they'll st- and that that's where you'll start to find five, ten different little cities that you go, okay, these are metrics. And then it's a matter of just putting offers out until you get one accepted. And then whichever one you get accepted, that's where you hyper-focus. And that's literally what happened. That's why I say fishing lines. I'll find five, 10, 15 different cities that other realtors, brokers, or investors are telling me are good areas. And then I just put fishing lines out in all those ponds. And over the course of a few months, you catch two here and two here, and you go, mm-hmm. cool. Now I'm going to build my teams up there. Nice. If somebody doesn't have, I'm thinking of, you know, one of my younger guys that maybe doesn't, they don't have too much down payment or, you know, what are some creative ways now with, you know, 
it's not like it was 2007, eight, you know, with the money being so easy to get, but how, how would you recommend for them to get their down payment and get started? Primary residence or for an investment property? Um, I mean, either one. So for primary residence, you could look into an FHA loan where you have to put less down. In California, with the high price point, it's still going to be a lot of money. So one of our favorite strategies right now is mm. subject to. So subject to is you could take over somebody's payments. Mm. So if they have a low mortgage interest rate already that they've locked in for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you can negotiate a creative financing deal where literally maybe you give them some money down. We did one recently that it was literally no money down. And it's just a seller that just needs out of the property. And they allow you to take title and take deed, but they leave the loan in their name. So the payments are lower because even if they got a mortgage two or three years ago, it could have been two, three, four percent. And if they have some equity built in the house, you're good. You got to like, you got to like be cold calling, right? Reaching out. How do you, how do you find people like yeah, that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's so a that's lot of work. Thing. That right? is. Yeah. But see, that's the thing. So we, we had somebody recently, uh, <laughs> I, I was teaching a class and this lady came up to me, her, uh, Nicole and I own a cell phone tower and I was telling her about the cell phone tower that we own. And she goes, well, I want one of those. How do I get those? And I go, well, like, you can find them in these areas. And she goes, well, like, what's the first step I do? I go, well, I would look and I would call the, the carriers and ask them what their requirements are for what kind of land they need to build those, those, those it's just like an intermediary, but like maybe it's 10 acres and within mm. this area and this area. And she goes, I don't want to call those people. That sounds like a lot of work. And I was like, well, then don't do it. Like, you know, but like all these things are, it's like, hey, I want a black belt, but I have to show up three days yeah, a week for 10 work. years. Yeah, so work, yeah. it's one of those things where like, if, if you want a great real estate deal with little no money down in California that might have equity and you don't really need to put anything down, like how bad do you want that? Do you want it bad enough to pick up the phone or not? You know? there, there's a guy on Instagram that makes it this post like, yeah, just in my, without sleeping, I do this and, you know, nobody down and I, you know, yeah. <laughs> like a joke, right? Yeah. Real. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's work. It's work. You got to do work. Yeah. You got to work like anything else. And patience, because it, it yeah. is one of those things, like even that deal that I was talking about that we got with the, the no money down subject to deal, she said no for months and months and months. And then eventually it turns into a yes, because you have to find somebody that's just motivated enough to either give you a great price to give you great terms. Mm. But I, I think that you're in a, a prime place for it right now, because some people, they want the price that they want. It's like, cool, you want that price. I'll give you that price. But I need the interest rate because the interest rate is what makes it still affordable for me to come in there. So mm. if you have like a, an off market, you won't find that as much with a realtor, but it is happening a little bit more and more. But off market, you can definitely find that stuff with calls or even now if you work with people like there, there's other investors that specialize in finding subject to deals. Mm. And you can go to Facebook groups and things like that and find people that have put those in place and you give them like 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 grand, depending on the deal. And then they'll basically sell you that property with creative financing. It's a numbers game, huh? Yeah. yeah. Numbers game, just like jujitsu. You got to put the reps in. Yeah. Drill it, drill it, drill it, do the work. Yeah. You got to take some beatings. It's, it's just a bunch of no's to get to the yes. That's all it is. So you started jujitsu around 2006-ish? Yeah, right around yeah? that. Okay. What year did, did Matt win the UFC, beat GSP? I think 2007 or 8. Cause I, so I was I started the year that he was on the Ultimate Fighter as a contestant. So whatever contestant, year season okay. 4 was, I started training before he went off to the show. And then I remember he went off to the show, and the first live UFC I ever went to was when he fought Chris Lytle in the finale, and Travis Luter fought... Um, ah, forget who uh, he fought. Anderson Silva, no? 
Well, no, he wanted final, to fight the fi Anderson. Right, right, yeah. I forgot to, yeah. So that was like the finale that, that he got to fight Anderson. And, and I remember Drago fought Scott Smith on that card, I think yeah. it was. so Where he knocked him out yeah. and, and dropped him. And then he, he thought it was done. Mm -hmm. And then one more punch. Yeah, <laughs> dude. And it was crazy because that was at the, I think it was the joint at the Hard Rock. And I think there was a cage and two rows and then like a little area where people can stand. Like the whole place might have held 600 people. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, one of the guys. Yeah, yeah, it's tiny, tiny. Yeah, but now, I mean, and that was the ultimate That's finale then. And now it's like, you know, I quit this flight in front of 28,000 people in New Zealand. Like it's insane how it's like grown like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was maybe like a year after that, after I started. Wow, okay. And then uh, how was it when uh, you got the title shot? Dude. And then he did the impossible. What was... What, what, what was that like? It was, it was great, man. So the uh, were you I, able to go to the fight at that time? I didn't go to the fight. I went to the second one, which he's always going to be like, "Don't talk about the second <laughs> one." Yeah, yeah. So I went to the second one though. But um, yeah, the first one was the first, was the first one, one, was the one. Yeah. But I remember watching it at home with my mom and my brother and my friend Liz Waldies, and like all of a sudden he hit him and he was rocked, and like we all flew off the couch. We we're like, "Oh my god!" You know. And then uh, he came back obviously the next day, and there was like cards. My mom actually went. She was funny. She bought him a card. And like, she, I, she didn't even tell me. She goes, oh, I went down to the academy and I saw Matt and I gave him a card. And it was like, a, like, congratulations on your win. And there was like a little ninja in the front and you opened up and the card started singing like Kung Fu fighting. And I was like, mom, don't do that. You know, but he was like, oh, your mom's so nice. But everybody was like so happy for him. But it, it was interesting because it's, it's different the way, like when Weidman won. Yeah. I think just because he's a huge guy, I think it was still that time in the UFC where people would like, would like, would meet Matt. And he's the nicest guy. As long as you're not a dick, like he's... He's yeah, the coolest guy yeah, ever. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you know, no longer than I yeah, have. But yeah. he, uh, you know, he was. It's, people would still kind of challenge him. Like I, I don't get it. Like I would watch people challenge Drago. I'd be like, dude, his job is to beat people up. Whose job it is to beat people up? Why do you think you were gonna? So, but it was cool. It was cool, like watching him just like be happy and get the support and be able to kind of shove it up everybody's ass. Because I remember he heard like Rogan and uh, and Dana talking about how he was gonna get killed, and after he was like, oh, like watch so, and that that's why cool. Like again, like being around those people, the way that. I'll hear Longo say, like, we didn't care that nobody believed in us. We believed in us. And I was like, man, those are the those are the guys I want to be around. Like, that's the kind of stuff. So I actually took amateur fights right around that time just so I could be part of that because mm -hmm. I remember if you weren't fighting, it was like everybody get out of the gym, like only the guys who were getting ready for stuff. So I was like, I want to be part of this training and what's going on. And, you know, I remember, like, the I fought the same weekend that Matt fought in Canada for the second fight and I remember he gave me this whole speech about like the hero and the coward and they both feel the same and like what you do with it and just be down to fight and I was like this was worth the whole thing like I got to sit down and like Matt gave me this kind of like going off to war speech and like stuff like that that you'll never forget that I was like even if I get my ass kicked like just being around that energy of getting ready for a title fight and like having people just you know kind of have everybody's back was so cool man man I think I went out I was in 2007 I went out to Long Island I was with Sean Williams, and I went to Matt's house, and we went to Ray's gym to because I was at a fight. I was gonna fight uh, Roger Huerta at the time. Oh wow! So they were helping me out, and uh, I had a great time, man. I had a great time. Ray was there. Uh, it was before Chris Weidman, I think. That was when did he come in? Probably like 2010, maybe 10, around yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But. Uh, it's been really cool to see Matt, like he was a pioneer, right? Not just in, you know, for Long Island, but like for jiu-jitsu in America and the world, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, you know, you, and people always under, underestimated him. 
because he's you know shorter, right? <laughs> and I don't say, <laughs> but right, stocky, he's stocky, 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 right? Okay, and but they always under- underestimated him how how tough and yeah how good he was, yeah, and uh, yeah, I really put uh, represented New York and and East Coast and you know, yeah, put things on the map. The first time I met him actually was uh, he was sleeping and how how many years how hard he worked for so many years. Right, back. This is back in. Let it go down to Brazil. The first time, nineties, nineteen nineties, nineteen ninety seven, six, something like that. He was living during the week in the city when Hanzo and Kukuk, Kukuk, how do you say his last name? Craig Kukuk. Kukuk. Yeah. Kukuk had the gym together still, and Matt would sleep during the week there and then go home to Long Island on the weekend. He would tell me. But he basically his job was to basically run the gym, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. think he was working a security booth, and Henzo was also, like, "Yeah, also, dude, get out of the security booth, and I'll just pay you whatever." Is that what happened? Right, right, yeah, because right. he always says he's like, "Man, Henzo saved like my life." Like a toll, like a toll booth. Yeah, or something, yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I think I read about that somewhere. Yeah. And th- and then he was living in he his saw academy. At a toll booth, right? Uh, I don't know if it was. I think it was a security booth. Security booth, a, but okay. Henzo had that whole story about the person that he met at the toll booth that he became friends with, and like. That whole, I, I, I literally end every class I teach with that because I think it's the craziest story ever. Where was Henzo, it, was the story, yeah. So he, I, I'm, I might butcher this, but it's on the UFC Unfiltered podcast. Yeah. But he basically, like, he went through a toll booth and he was trying to tell this lady, like, how's your day going? And she was like, dude, 50 cents. 50, like, didn't want to put up with this. And, you know, he was Henzo, so he was like, I'm going back there tomorrow. I'm going back. And he just kept going back and going back and going back and just being nicer and nicer and nicer. And eventually she opened up and she was like, okay, like, Here's how my day is. Here's how this is. And then they became friends, and then they started, like, hanging out. And when he was on, like, the podcast, he was like, hey, I got to leave early. I'm going to the retirement party for my friend. And they were like, who's your friend? And then he backtracked the whole story to, like, this lady who basically, like, told him to go screw himself in the toll booth 15 years earlier, and now he's going to her retirement party. And, like, everybody was like, dude, why didn't you just go to the easy pass lane? And he's like, because either you change people or people change you. And I was like, it's like that's some deep Henzo shit right there. You know that's pretty awesome. That's it, right? Yeah, that's it. Either people change you, or, or you you change the people. Yeah, it's deep, right? Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, wow. So many years. He went to the. He went to New York, and when did he go to New York? Like mid nineties. Mid nineties, right? He moved ninety six, ninety seven. Amal Easton worked on his. Uh, on his hand after his uh, fight with uh, Oleg Tutarov <laughs> in in Rio, so he went to Amal Easton. He he went to acupuncture school, and he's like, I think I went all those years to school for one moment, and that moment was to help work on Amal on Hanzo Gracie's <laughs> hand after he heard it fighting Oleg Tutarov. That's cool. And then after that, they formed a friendship, and yeah, all these years later. That's awesome. It's a black belt and runs Colorado right with jujitsu and yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, man, what uh, we're out, we're out here in LA. What are you excited to do? What What do you what, when you come out to LA? What are you excited to do? Honestly, I, I'm usually just like I want to eat some food, with Jason Eisner. I want to do some jujitsu with Alberto Crane and get some sun. Other than that, man, that that's literally like 
jiu-jitsu food, food and jiu-jitsu that, that's like the only <laughs> thing you know people would be like man you're so boring but i'm like but well, that's what i love i love getting up early you know because you make these relationships like you and i connected and then you're like man i can't wait to go back there why how can i find an excuse to go out there and like literally we we're trying to find a place to just go it was like well we got this coming up we got that coming up and it was like yeah but it's in burbank what else are we doing in burbank i was like alberto alberto's in burbank like let me go in let me get some jiu-jitsu in there and Hang out, meet some good people. You always make time to wherever you go, right, to do jujitsu yeah. and meet up with whoever's out there. Yeah, but you, you just—it's so hard getting people to wake up early. So I appreciate <laughs> that you were always like, "Yeah, like five a.m. Let's do it. Let's do it." Yeah, Matt, Sarah, I was like, I think you called the gym a couple times. Yeah, and you're like persistent, and then you're like, <laughs> you dropped Matt, Sarah's name, and I was like, oh, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I was, I was telling Nicole. Remember that? <laughs> yeah, because I was like, hey, man, how much for a private? You're like, I don't know. I don't do them. I'm like, what? You're like, I just did it because you said you were Matt's guy. I was like, ah, oh, that's awesome. Cool. I'll definitely tell him. Nah, he always says great things about you, man. You know, obviously. It's like you said, water finds his level. Me and you connected immediately. I didn't yeah. even realize you guys were that close. So yeah, it was cool. Yeah, Awesome, man. Yeah, we started doing a little tack fit right in the yeah. mornings, moving in some into flow and those things. Dude, that was, uh, so my buddy Jeremy trains with uh, Dominic Cruz out there. But I remember, like, I saw him that weekend. And I was, I'm used to like, we'll get together all day. And then after we roll, everything will start to tighten up my neck, my back, everything. Like, especially I've had like bulging uh, herniated discs. Mm -hmm. And then the next day when I was coming in, I expected to basically come in and be half of what I was the day before from all the pain. And I remember when I walked in, I was like, oh, like, this is so weird. Like, I feel really good. And you were like, that's tack fit. That's what we did yesterday. And I was like, holy crap. And I didn't even realize. And then I'd never felt that good. Like, I didn't realize I started feeling blood flow to my legs and then, like, my knee was given out. Every time, like, I, from the flights from New York to Chicago, right, right, right. I'd get up on the plane and I'd fall over when I got up. And then me and you did some stuff for, like, 15 minutes. And I got off the plane. I was like, I can move my leg. I'm not falling over. Like, that's what opened my eyes to it, that I was like, man, like, even 10, 15 minutes changed. I hadn't, I hadn't felt that good in years, dude. It was, it was crazy. Awesome, man. Yeah, the, the proper, like, warm-up, right? And then the proper cool-down. Even more important, right? Yeah. The cool-down afterwards to turn off all the muscles you used, right? Excuse release the tension in the body yeah even today like so i i haven't rolled in a while i haven't having some like neck issues so i was like let me go easy but we did a few rounds and then even the like the cool down after i feel great right now man i feel great i can nice. feel like the blood flow through my shoulders because i was a little worried i was like i'm gonna get in trouble if i'm injured after we roll so that's why i was like let me do, i did a few i'm okay but it just opens everything up man nice man yeah. nice awesome awesome well Look forward to doing doing the cold plunge with you next. Yeah, yeah I, gotta, I, gotta, I gotta redeem myself. It's terrible. <laughs> well, that's some fun. Well, awesome, awesome to get to talk to you in person. You know, we've been on on Zoom and yeah. and and, and uh, well, on podcasts, not not on the mats. You know, so yeah, it's, yeah. it's cool to, to share that, share this friendship and and our relationship, and just talk old stories too. But. Matt, Sarah, and, and, and some of those times. It's really cool, really cool. Dude, I appreciate it. You always make time. You're always a good guy. And when we connected, I didn't even realize, like, your whole backstory, man. I was just like, oh, it's just a great day. I hung out. We did jujitsu, And then I realized, like, all this, like, inspiring stuff that you've done and all the things that you've overcome, man. You've become a hero of mine. And uh, it's it's very nice to be able to become friends with somebody that you look up to and respect so much. So the fact that you've opened up your doors to uh, to me and my friend here, man, it's uh I can't thank you. Thank enough, you, brother. brother. It's been thank a pleasure. Thank you so much, man. How can people find you? So and more learn about some of your real estate. You know, you have your podcast. Yeah. A what's a uh, the, the A game podcast. The A game podcast. Yeah. yeah. Easy, easiest website in the world. It's nick 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 three nicks dot com slash links l i n k s. 
If you go to that, you'll see all the ways to listen to the podcast and all the ways to connect me on social media. I'm probably most active on Instagram. Mm -hmm. So if you message me on some of the other stuff, I might miss it. But either connect with me right on there. Um, I tell people, too, if you're interested in the real estate side, if you text me at 516-540-5733, text the word real estate, we can have a conversation of if you want to buy property, sell properties, or partner on some level, that would be the best way to do it. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, brother. Thank you, brother. Thank you.